Welcome everybody to the latest and fifth episode of the second season of Pet Talk with me, Adam Moses, Bellamy Briggs, and Hi. <laughs> the Lord Moylan. Welcome. Thank you. Well, you're very kind. I'm very flattered indeed to be invited. And um, thank you very much for asking me. And you did ask me to start off by saying something about myself. So I'm a Conservative peer, member of the House of Lords. Um, I take the Conservative whip. And um, I've been a member since October of 2020. So just over two years, two and a quarter years now, two years, three or four months. Um, and um, I was nominated for the peerage by Boris Johnson. Um mm -hmm. I spent um, most of my life after university. I was in I was at Oxford, uh, where I read philosophy and, and German. And then I spent most of my life um, um, uh, involved in local government as a local councillor. About twenty eight years. Can you have one second? I'm just getting some coffee. Sorry, That's fine. Thank you. Um, about twenty eight years in in local government in London, and at the same time I was. Um, having to work, I was running a, my own business, so um, which was mostly to do with financial services because being a counsellor, of course, isn't normally a full-time job. Yeah. But I had uh, a lot of, um, I accrued over time quite a lot of pan-London responsibilities because the London local authorities collaborate with each other. And then when Boris Johnson became mayor of, of London, he put me on the board of Transport for London because my experience was mostly in that side of local authority work um mm -hmm. to do with um transport the environment waste parks things like that and um um and and i was deputy chairman of transport for london for about half his time as mayor so i had a lot to do with transport policy and tfl and i was on the board mm -hmm. the whole i was on the board for nearly the whole of his time as mayor and um um, and then uh, when he became prime minister, he thought I might be a suitable person to be a what used to be called a working peer. So mm. I, do, um, I, I do the House of Lords, at least at the moment. Um, I do it as a more or less full time job. Mm. I've got one other small um, public appointment sitting on the board of a development corporation, which happened quite separately around the same time mm. um, for a few years. I don't know how long that'll last. It could stop this September. It could be renewed for another three years. Um, but otherwise, that's my main activity, um, is being in the House of Lords. So I'm very flattered to be here and happy to discuss the House of Lords, its future. Does it have a future? What's the future look like? Um, what it contributes and what it does. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. Um First question then being is then how did your, obviously we're a university-led podcast, so how did your time studying philosophy in German at Oxford like prepare you for that career uh, and, and, and tell us, you know, some about your time at the University of Oxford? Yeah, well, I suppose it was a preparation not because of studying um, philosophy in German, but because I was also, when I was there, I was president of the Oxford Union, which is a oh, wow. very... Okay. Um, requires a lot of um and i don't know if it requires a lot of political skill i suppose it teaches a certain amount of political skill though in my mm. case um it teaches really resilience because i was so um um so hopeless at becoming president of the oxford union <laughs> that i only managed to get elected at the very end of my time at oxford and then only by being um up against alan duncan who was somebody 
the, one of the few people even less popular than myself, uh, a position he's continued <laughs> happily to con continue, continue to occupy for the rest of our lives. <laughs> uh, so that I only became president of the union by standing against Alan Duncan, essentially. That was my main political skill. During your time then at the union, what was your like greatest achievement? Um, uh, well, undoubtedly, um, the fact that during my time at the union, um, Richard Nixon, who was the uh, disgraced former president of the United States, um, came to the union, and that sort of was a major global, the most important thing, the, the most <clears throat> reported thing that the union had done in mm. half a century. Uh, I suppose, and you know, the fighting the global press off. I mean, you know, the, yeah, the and dealing with the, the, the my my greatest fondest memory of it is dealing with the American secret, the U.S. Secret Service, uh, which oh, wow. guards guards the president and mm. ex presidents, and um, they are absolutely brilliant. They are fantastic. They are wonderful. I absolutely, I, my admiration for them is just huge and partly mm. they all look like huge american football players yeah i would have thought so i was going to say and they'd probably be scary wouldn't they? they're a bit scary <laughs> uh, but you turn out on investigation that they are so clever and are rattling with higher degrees and doctorates and god knows what Gosh. and they yeah. are just um uh, amazingly impressive people wow I, I won't even go into how how you secured Richard Nixon for to, to yeah, speak well, I'm, not the entirely, union. I'm not entirely sure about that, but I have, <laughs> it is the union's 200th anniversary mm. this year, and they are producing a sort of book or booklet, and a number of people have been asked to contribute to it, and mm. I have an article for them which will be published next month um, on the whole Nixon thing and and. Partly on the question, how on earth did Nixon? Did we persuade? Yeah, managed to come, come? Yeah. and and I've worked out. It took me years to work out that what actually happened is very mysterious. What actually happened was that Nixon wanted to come. Mm. This is his choice and his choice of venue. Um, oh, okay. It was, it was um, uh, coaxing us into doing it while looking as though he wasn't asking was the great. <laughs> 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 it was like a redemption story, didn't it? Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, if I just say I'm, I'm going off, don't I want to talk about we want to talk about House Lords and current politics. <laughs> I'm absolutely serious. Nixon in front of an audience, especially a student, younger audience, which he really reacted well with. He liked that sort of audience. He liked yeah. he liked <laughs> other young people. Um, he was absolutely brilliant. Um, he was totally without notes. Uh, he spoke for about 10 minutes, and then he asked, answered questions for about an hour and 20 minutes, I think, in total, something like that. Um, the, I can guarantee you none of the questions was notified to him, although he will have worked out easily in advance what some of them were going to be. And had <laughs> but, but, but he had no idea. No, There was no notification of what the questions were. They were extremely wide-ranging. But the whole thing is on YouTube. And... Oh. It was put there by the Richard Nixon Foundation. So if you type in Richard Nixon Oxford Union into YouTube, it should come up. And 
uh, I still think it is a masterclass in um, how to handle an audience in what mm. could have been difficult circumstances and and to win them over. And he was, um, I think there were very, very few political figures today I can think of who can do that, who could do that, and also show the intellectual range. I mean, he's being asked questions about the whole range of um, foreign and, and US domestic policy by, mm. by clever people who know about it, um, or, or at least who've studied it, studying it at university, PPE students, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so quite clever. And and he's asked all these questions, and he just handles them all with complete confidence, and it's a very, very impressive performance. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely make sure to watch that, and not only we we also get to see a, a strapping young Lord Moylan as well in the, uh, in the <laughs> a bit more hair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay, it goes so... to show like it goes to show like how um just like talented pres presidents and like prime ministers are. Sometimes you kind of forget like how like smart and technical they are. And I think that just shows that yeah, Nixon was a great speaker. That's really cool. That's something that's it. Yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll move now to the, the topic of our discussion today, and that being uh the future of the House of Lords. So I, I suppose the, the the first question to ask uh, you, Lord Moylan, would be um, to just to, to tell us tell us about the House of Lords for people who don't understand how it works technically, you know, as opposed to the workings of the House of Commons. Well, rather than just say how it works, let me start with a slightly different question, which is what is it okay. for? What does it do? Hmm. Because if you're going to talk about replacing it or modernizing it or electing it or whatever, you need to understand what it does. And then you can ask yourself the question, do those things need doing? I mean, I think the answer mm. is going to be yes to that. And then if they do need doing, what's the best way of doing them? And that's all a yeah. reasonable approach, I think. Yeah. Rather than that. Or is the House of Lords quite good at doing them? In other words, mm. would, you, would you end up reinventing something like the House of Lords? So the, the basic thing is the House of Lords goes through legislation. Legislation, it is a legislature. That's the it, it is what it says on the can. Most of the work it does is actually processing legislation. It's a factory for processing legislation, mm -hmm. and ninety five percent of the legislation it processes is initiated by the government. There's a very small scope for. I mean, ninety eight percent really. There's a very small scope for private members' bills, but like in the Commons, they can get so far, but they don't usually go further unless the government is actually supporting them. Mm. So um, basically, the legislation comes from the government. And what happens nowadays in the Commons is that um, uh, the, the two houses have a similar process of having a, a nominal first reading of a bill and then a substantial debate, maybe one day, sometimes two days, of a second reading on the principles of the bill, and then it goes into committee. And in committee, which can go on for quite a number of days, though never consecutively, it's always two days a week. So if you have eight days in committee on a bill, that's quite a big bill. Um, they'd be two days a week over, you know, a month or longer. Yeah. And, um, and um, when it goes into committee, um, members put down detailed amendments to the bill. Mm. And these amendments are um, intended to provoke debate, to test reaction, to government reaction, to point out mistakes in the bill, 
but one of the people many of the amendments were actually put down by the government because mm. the process followed in the commons is time limited and very often in the commons and i don't mean any disrespect to mps i don't think nowadays the legislation gets the scrutiny that it used mm. that they used to be able to give to it mps are okay. so distracted by other things Whereas in the Lords, we don't have a lot else to do apart from legislation. That is the job. And there is uh, theoretically no time limit on how long we can. There's no guillotine in the House of Lords. Mm. I mean, informally, but not formally. We can make things last longer if we choose to. Mm. And, And so quite detailed scrutiny is given to all of these in the Lords, through lots of amendments. And at the end of committee, all of those amendments, except the government ones, but all the amendments from everybody else are just withdrawn. Um, And they're never pressed to a vote. And then the bill comes back to the whole House report stage, reporting technically on what happened in committee. And this is where all the action takes place, because by now people who've tabled amendments know whether they think they're getting support for them or not. Mm. If you're not getting support, there's little point in pursuing them any further. But many of them will be put down, especially by opposition parties at report stage. And then we do vote on them. And of course, because the government doesn't have a majority in the House of Lords, quite frequently those amendments do pass. And and so the government then has to decide how to how to deal with them, because mm. the bill the bill as it leaves the Lords. And the bill as it has to be agreed by the commons. I mean, you have to have one version of the bill agreed by both houses yeah. um, at the end of the process. So anything we change will then go to the commons for them to see if they'll agree it, which means basically will the government accept it? Or will there be an alternative amendment? Or will they just face you down and say, we're using our majority to defeat you? We dare you to put it back in because we can then put it back in. Yeah. So this is a process called ping pong at the end. Where yeah. it goes back and forwards between the two houses until you get agreement. So essentially, what the House of Lords does is that it is a legislative scrutiny body mm. that gives an awful lot of space to government and political parties to to scour legislation for mistakes, misconceptions, bad ideas, and sometimes to defeat it on particular points. And mm. I think that is a necessary role. One other thing the House of Lords does do is is it has select committees like the Commons does. I I happen to chair one of them now. And and so it does select committee work, which is inquiry work, you know, looking into particular topics. But but the core of it is the legislative work. It is a legislature. Okay, so um, how then do you think the House of Lords, as it is today, uh, serve as like as that check of balance on the Commons. You know, could the if there were to be you know an, an elected upper chamber, what what would the difference in that check and balance be between the current House of Lords and that sort of you know proposed House of Lords as by the Labour Party? I think it slightly depends on matters of detail, actually. Um, mm. For one thing, um, would uh, a crucial question is, 
um, would the people elected to the upper chamber, second chamber, um, have long terms, and would they be available for re-election? Um, mm. So if the people going into the upper chamber were elected for 15 years, I mean, in the first occasion, you'd have to stagger it, so some serve five, some 10, yeah. some 15, but, but then in principle, they were elected for 15 years, say, yeah. and were not available, not, not eligible for re-election. I think that would be very different from people elected for five years uh, who were available for re-election, because um, the thing about the Commons very properly as a democratic house is that people who are elected to it usually want to be re-elected. Mm. And a lot of their focus, therefore, goes on issues that will help them get re-elected. And I'm not saying that at all that's a bad thing, but it means that if you're an MP, you have to give an awful lot of time to constituency work. Mm. You have to give time to a constant political campaign that is going on in the background. It's not a big election campaign because that comes, you know, before the election, but you're constantly campaigning in a small way. Mm -hmm. um, you um, and you spend a lot of time taking up local issues when perhaps you could speak better on behalf of the country if you didn't. Mm -hmm. Now, that's inevitable to a degree and very proper in a democratic chamber. If you had all of that going on in the second chamber, I don't see what they'd be adding. They'd just be replicating the commons. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they'd have the time and the space to do... Um, the legislative scrutiny they do at the moment. Mm. But then there's the question of the electoral system. Um, there's a lot of feeling in the House of Lords and elsewhere that if you re if you have uh, an elected upper chamber, it mustn't be on a party list system where you go into the ballot box, Adam, and you're, you choose between this party, this party, and this party. There's mm -hmm. some scope for independence, but they never get elected. So you choose Conservative, Labour, Liberal Democrats, Scots Nats, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and you put your cross next to them in some sort of regional constituency. Because in that system, all that actually is happening is the people who get elected are the people nominated by their parties to be the top of the list. Mm. So effectively, the parties choose who sits in the House of Lords. Mm. Yeah, right, that sense. Tell me how different that is from what happens at the moment. Mm. Yeah, because I was actually going to ask what's the um, that's basis exactly, on which you get elected to the House of Lords. That's exactly what happens at the moment. Well, mm. <clears throat> about three quarters of members of the House of Lords are nominated by party leaders. Yeah. Um, and about a quarter, I'm making the numbers up a bit, are crossbenchers mm -hmm. who are um, um, also, I mean, it, it, uh, in a legal sense, I should say, in a legal sense, all um, um, uh, members of the House of Lords are proposed by the Prime Minister um, to the Queen, uh, the King. Um, so it is the Prime Minister nominates everybody because that's the job of the Prime Minister is to advise the monarch on things like this. But in fact, the list is put together by a degree of collaboration between the party leaders. Uh, whoever is prime minister is the boss 
of this thing. So you can't, if you're yeah. the leader of the opposition, you can't absolutely insist on how many you're going to have. But mm-hmm. but then government changes. Um, and they're, they're nominated by party leaders. And then you have crossbenchers who tend to be former judges, former military figures, civil servants, and very often the former heads of royal colleges, professional bodies, and, and things like that. Um, there's also a cadre of about 90 elected hereditary peers who are elected by other hereditary peers, mostly, or sometimes they're elected by the House. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's um, um, a very good thing indeed. And they do all the hard work. Um, and um, um, but But otherwise, it's nomination by the prime minister but usually on a party political basis but also on the basis of cross benches the cross benches would be very difficult to accommodate in an elected house so you'd have to say that's fine i know what the cross benches do i know the independence they bring mm. i know the expertise they bring and i'm consciously accepting that i'm going to see that that'll that'll all be trashed trash that we don't need that we'll in the interests of a purely democratic chamber all of that will go. Now, that's a perfectly reasonable position to adopt. But as I say, you need to know what the House of Lords does and how it does it before you get rid of it and try and replace it. Mm. Otherwise, you replace it with the wrong thing. So I would say personally that I would support it if it was elected and if it was on a PR basis, I would say you want something very different from party lists. It would have to be something like multi-member can uh, STV in multi-member, large multi-member constituencies, mm. which gives the best chance for independence to get elected. Do you think then that that sort of short-termism, where elected politicians such as MPs are only focusing, obviously not only focusing, but are, are largely focused on their own re-election at the next at, at the next general election? Do you think that is then detrimental to legis- legislative? scrutiny in the Commons? Well, I think it's absolutely vital to democracy. Mm. I mean, it's absolutely essential in a democracy that people um, should not only be elected, but should also be thinking about how they're accountable to their electors. Mm -hmm. Um, That accountability comes uh, in large measure through offering themselves to re-election. So we don't want to run this down. This is really, really important, Mm. uh, really important stuff. But undoubtedly, it puts a strain on MPs um, because, of, and I think it's to do with expectations, and the MPs have nourished the expectations. But when I was um, young, um, MPs were not social workers for their constituents. Mm. Now, nowadays, everyone thinks, if you've got a problem, I'll send an email to my MP. Um, and 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 why? Most things have nothing to do with your MP, mm. um, and 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 MPs are inundated by uh, correspondence from correspondence from constituents. Whereas fifty years ago, they probably had a great deal less of it, and of course, a hundred years ago, very often they didn't even bother to go to their constituency more than once in between elections. Um, you know, they, they, it was a different approach. They weren't social workers. Yeah. Um, now we have a lot of that strain. Yeah. Um, and um, so uh, MPs get pushed in a certain direction. 
um, by political pressure. And I think it takes off it it takes it takes the eye off the ball a little bit when it comes to processing legislation. There mm. is something else, which is that although you wouldn't believe it at the moment, um, generally the whipping system works very well in the House of Commons, and these mm. do respond to the whip mm-hmm. of all parties. Whereas members of the House of Lords. The whipping system also works quite well, but of course there's n- there's no ultimate bite to it mm. because nobody in the House of Lords can be sacked. Mm. Um, nobody can be deselected. Um, and if you're really difficult on a particular topic, people just learn to live with the fact that they can't whip you on it. Um, and you just have to try and carry on being polite, everyone being polite to each other, mm. even though you're being extremely difficult. Mm. Do you think that that then could be, I suppose, detrimental to the efficacy of the Lords if there's not a, a proper whipping system in place where well, as I uh, say, I mean, Lords can't it, be deselected? It's teleology, isn't it, Adam? It's, you know, what is the Lords for? Mm. And what is its purpose? And is it fulfilling it? Um, and if you're going to replicate it, yeah. is the purpose still the same? And is it is it doing just as well? Now, there are other things in favour of keeping the Lords. Mm-hmm. <coughs> it's very cheap. It costs mm. about a fifth of running the Commons. Okay. Um, we get almost nothing. Mm. Um, we, um, after a year, I've managed to get, I managed to get a desk in a shared office. I, you know, in the mm. palace of Westminster. But I don't have an office. I don't have a room. Mm. Air room with four, a small room with four other people. You don't get any secretarial staff. You don't get any researchers, MPs, mm. staff. You know, I chair a select committee, and I don't get any money for that. Whereas in the mm. common, if you chair a select committee, you get sixteen thousand on top of your salary. Gosh. We don't get we don't get salaries, but we do get daily attendance allowances. But we only mm. get them if we turn up and ask for them. I mean, sorry, we only get them if we are there doing work. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it's pure gig economy. Yeah. When, the pla- when the place is closed, we don't have any work. Um, but when it is open, we only get paid if we turn up. Mm. Uh, and um, so there's nothing else on top of that uh, for anything, uh, including secretaries or researchers or anything. We have a good library, which mm-hmm. helps with factual research. Mm-hmm. Um, but not the sort of research where you can go and say, as you could to your own researcher, you could say, I've got to make this speech next week. What do you think would be a good angle? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can't say that to the library. You can go and ask them, you know, how many people with red hair were convicted of motoring offenses <laughs> between 1970 <laughs> and 1975. And if the information is in the public domain, they will get it. They're very good. Yeah. But they're not people who are helping you to you know think how to make out an approach so, to a top would you say that like um fiscal that lack of a fiscal element makes being a lord more of a vocational job and i think if if that were true I think the real I issue, like that would be good yeah i think that would be good if it was about um uh peer poverty and access mm. so like in you know some people in the house of lords are very rich yeah i can imagine um and uh, uh, a lot of people 
um, uh, depend on at the other end of the scale, depend on the House of Lords for their income. Mm, Um, And you've got people in between, some with jobs, some with pensions, some with, um, you know, other forms of income, part-time work, things like that. Um, So um, uh, it it is a sort of a, it is a real issue because um, unless you, I mean, it, it depends how you live, but it, it's quite difficult to live on Lord's allowances mm. um, and then don't get sick. Cause of course, if you're sick, you don't get paid. Mm. Um, if you can't go in, you, you, know, you can't get paid. Yeah. So you, it, 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 you know, you, you, it is, it is a place which is easier to join if you're well off mm. and it should of course be like that, but nobody wants to talk about this. Mm. Do now, you... if you had a elected house, of course, everyone would get paid a large salary. They'd have staff mm. or staff. I don't know where all these people would go, by the way, because there's no room for them. Um, we're already piled high on top of each other. Mm. So you'd have to think about a new building, and it, that's difficult because where does the new building go? So... Yeah. Yeah, so keeping it the laws as it is at the moment is also one of the, the more responsible you know fa- uh, financial well, I, decision one of the one of the most um one of the reasons the house of lords has proven so durable mm. is that the moment you start asking a few practical questions like how much will it cost yeah. where will they be accommodated and will they constantly be clashing with the commons mm. i mean the lords clashes with the commons but 99 times out of 100 the lords gives way because the Commons is the elected house and we're not. Mm-hmm. They have two elected houses. They can both get up on their high horse and say we're both elected. Um, so the, the Commons is nervous about that. The Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, so Lindsay Hoyle has said he's nervous about that only recently. Mm. Um, so you've got to think about how that's going to... And one of the reasons it's turned out to be so durable is that the moment you start thinking about these issues of cost, accommodation, relations with the Commons function, purpose, teleology, things like that, it all gets very complicated. Mm. Okay, so uh, do you believe there to be an adequate diversity of backgrounds within the uh, the upper chamber? And do you think that's representative of, of, of a changing Britain? Well, it depends. Um, uh, that's two separate questions. First question... Mm-hmm. Um, it depends really on the angle you take. Um, if you look for proportional representation, then uh, the answer is um, yes and no, depending what measures you look at. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of female members of the House of Lords, but not half. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of there's quite there's a lot of ethnic minority representation. But is it proportional to the population? There's a lot of um, gay and lesbian representation. Is it proportional to the population? I haven't checked mm. the figures. Um, but is there a lot of represent uh, a lot of diversity in terms of educational background um, and other life experiences? Mm. I'd say probably not. Then you ask yourself: Is it representative? Now, there are ways of different ways of answering that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you could look at it in the way I just did, which is to say, do particular identity groups match the percentage of the population as a whole? Mm-hmm. But also say, do you have people who represent trades unions? Do you have people who represent vets? Do you have mm-hmm. people who represent doctors? Do you have people who represent nurses and academics and so on? Um who are representative, institutionally to some extent, representative of the nation. And Mm. the answer, of course, is the Lords has that in spades because the crossbenchers in particular are full of people who've either served in the armed forces or they've been presidents of royal colleges. We had the freedom of speech, the higher education freedom of speech bill recently, and the place was full of heads of colleges and vice chancellors chancellors in particular Mm -hmm. of universities and so on so representative doesn't have to mean numerically matching a particular population it can be simply do you represent and of course we have a lot of ex-trade union i mean former trade union leaders i mean they're still trade unionists because they're still committed to the to the, the the values of the trade union movement but um who are former senior officials of trade unions mm-hmm. and so so th- many of those do sit on the labor benches rather than as cross benches yeah. but the breadth of experience i think is um very representative so do you think this diversity yeah. that you've talked about yeah. translates sports, into that sportsmen and so on we have sportsmen and olympians and people like that you know Mm. Yeah, I was just going to ask, do you think that um, the diversity of perspectives that he talks about translates into, like, the amendments you see? Do you, do you really, like, when you're yeah, um, analysing, do, pra- do you like to see it? In yeah. practice, depends what you mean, again, uh, as to whether you're talking about um, experience or political view. In practice, the House of Lords is a very, is by my standards, a very left-wing house. Okay. So not only do you have Labour and Liberal Democrats, but a large number of the crossbenchers take what I regard as a very sort of um, state-centred, left-leaning sort of position mm. uh, on many issues. And you can get consensus uh, and you can get a majority in the House for things like that, but not for anything um, right-wing. And quite a lot of the Conservative members are what I would call very sort of soft left-wing type conservative, um, who, who are very comfortable in that similar space. Mm. So I don't think that the crossbenchers necessarily bring diversity of opinion. But what they bring is, many of them, is a diversity of experience in that, you know, you, you're, you're talking on an animal welfare bill and you're able to talk to and learn from and get advice from, you know, someone who used to chair the Royal College of Veterinarians um, and things like that, who really know what they're talking about. Um, and that that contribution makes a big difference. Mm. Could you uh, provide specific examples then where the House of Lords has played a crucial role, uh, a crucial role in, uh, you know, improving or amending uh, legislation from the Commons? Well, I don't think I've I've often said this since I, I've learned since I've been there that it's quite difficult to answer that question, Adam, because what mm. I've learned is that 
that the House of Lords is a place, is not a place of huge triumphs. It's a place of very small victories. Yeah, so okay. you get... That's a nice way to look at it, yeah. If you defeat the government on something <laughs> massive, they're, they're usually able just to reverse it. Yeah. In yes. the Commons, and then you face you down. But if you can persuade a majority of people in the House of Lords, sorry, I'll just, if I may, I'll just deal with, I'll just send them a message. Yes, okay. If you, um, <clears throat> if you are dealing with, um, uh, if you can persuade a majority of people in the House of Lords to do something quite small, which might be to do with improving access to a particular medicine or changing a bill so as to get something put on a statutory footing, which previously was, you know, not properly regulated, mm. and and the government accepts that, or even half accepts it, then you can make um, small changes that improve things. Mm. That's that that's how the Lords works, in my view, not through big demonstrable, you know, mm. we defeat of the government and um, and everything will change as a consequence. If you mm. defeat the government on something big, nothing will change as a consequence, um, unless mm. the government's on its last legs. Um, <laughs> I mean, if, if, if anything, make, I suppose the relations could just worsen. Lots of modest improvements to things. Mm. That's that, that that that's really interesting, and it's, well, it's that's given me like a new perspective on 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 how the Lords work in terms of. I mean, like I said, then. If the Lords were to come, you know, to come, you know, all all, all, gun, all guns blazing at the Commons, um, like you said earlier, the Commons will just, uh, sorry, the Lords will just give way to the Commons, you know, well, there most have been of a, the time. There's been life in there. There's been one occasion and now potentially two where the Lords have said they wouldn't give way. Mm. But one was on part five of the Internal Markets Bill uh, under Boris Johnson, which was the bill that would have, um, basically disapplied large amounts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and um, in the end, the government dropped it, so the House of Lords got its way. Hmm. Now, something very similar um, in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, um, if the government persists with it, the House of Lords has made it clear it's probably going to oppose it and keep opposing it, won't hmm. give way. So the government would have to force it through using the parliament act okay yeah is 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 does that happen regularly at all where the government will just will then force it through using the parliament parliament act instead of um uh, uh, the parliament act it? parliament act is hardly ever used mm. i mean the threat of it is in the background and is one of the the Lords tends to give away um, that and the lack of democratic democracy. Um, that rationale is enforced, so to speak, is the, the distant threat in the background of the Parliament mm. Act. In practice, mm. it's hardly ever used. This would be quite a constitutional ruction if the government did use it. They wouldn't be able to, for legal reasons, until May. Mm. So do you like observe a separation between like so say the parliament or the government had like a political like um not agenda but consensus 
is is that not is that a consensus that's not observed in the House of Lords as well? Because as he said, they're nominated by um, that prime ministers and people within incumbent members of parliament. So is it hard to like yeah. see that separation? Like, is it really um, uh, like check or balance in the sense that it's opposing, or are they normally just congruent in those cases? Um. In most cases, they give way eventually. But to take something like the Public Order Bill, which has passed it at the moment, has passed the Commons. Mm. Many people in the Lords uh, take the view that it infringes human rights, it, it excessively limits the right mm. to protest and all of that sort of thing. Um, they mm. will amend it. Undoubtedly, I'm not following it myself, but I suspect, undoubtedly, they will change it radically before it, before they finish with it. Um, and and then it will go back to the Commons, and the Commons will have to decide. The government will have to decide: do we insist on this and force it through, or do we give way? So last year they tried. The government tried certain similar powers in the public police crime sentencing and courts bill, mm. and um, uh, later an act. Uh, the Lords opposed them, and the government dropped some of them. So they're now coming back. Oh, okay. So it, it's it, the Lords can be effective if the government chooses to give way, um, mm. because the Lords can obstruct things, hold it up, uh, the government yeah. wants to get on with something, um, or it just looks bad. Mm. Um, that's sort of how it works. Do you yeah. think then that acts such as the Parliament Act, where you know a, a government can figuratively you know, ram legislation through, yeah, without you know observing the proper processes of putting uh, legislation to the Lords for scrutiny, do you think that puts into question the legitimacy of of the Lords and the upper chamber in the UK Parliament? No, it, <clears throat> the legislation has to go to the Lords. Mm. The Lords has to fail to deal with it. And, okay. it, and then it happens over two sessions. Then the Commons have to reintroduce it and pass it again. Mm. And then it doesn't have to go to the Lords the second time. Okay. More or less, okay. is how, that's how it works. Yeah. <clears throat> so it has to happen over two parliamentary sessions. Mm. Oh, now I've just realised, yes. And I say they couldn't do it until May. In fact, they won't be able to do it until November because I just heard on the grapevine that the current parliamentary session is going to continue until November. Well, there's going to be no summer recess. There will or... be a summer recess, but the parliamentary session is different mm. from the... Oh, okay, yeah, the, then the... ...carries on until the programme of legislation is sort of done, and then there's a new Queen's speech. Yeah. King's speech, I must learn. We've all got... <laughs> yeah, that happens to all of us. Um, yeah, there's a new King's speech um, mm. that sets a new legislative programme. Yeah, that's when the session ends and starts. So, but okay. you will have, you'll still have Easter recess, summer recess, mm. conference. Recess. Mm. Okay. Then. Uh, so, moving on to like a particular um, act that undertaken by the government of Tony Blair in '99, do you think the House of Lords Act was a step in the right or wrong direction? Well, I think it was a step in the wrong direction. Um, mm. And I think um, th there are a number of reasons why 
look, first of all, nobody um, was who was involved in that was satisfied with the outcome. That's yeah. the first. Uh, nobody thinks the idea of a largely appointed house mm. with 92 hereditary peers in it um, is, um, is a coherent or satisfactory outcome in theory, however well mm. it works practice that's the first thing second thing is um there are a lot of people on both sides who wanted a comprehensive reform they might have disagreed about what comprehensive reform looked like in detail but mm. they all said you, if you're going to change it you should have um a properly elected chamber we'll come to the detail detail is important but mm -hmm. the principle should be a properly elected chamber mm -hmm. and um that was indeed the labor government starting position Mm -hmm. um, and that didn't survive. And so um, it, 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 what we've got is, is is a completely botched hybrid that has even less logic than the old system in which the hereditary peers who sat, who could, all of whom could sit if they chose to, I mean, many didn't, mm. uh, at least had the sanction of tradition, if nothing else, like mm. monarchy. But now there's no logical way of explaining things except you know this is how it's turned out although i'll put it to you in another way let's say you didn't have a house of lords at all it didn't exist mm. you only had one chamber and the chamber said look we don't have enough time to scrutinize all this legislation properly mm. what we need is a separate body which can scrutinize it for us and make annotations all over it and send mm -hmm. it back to us with proposals for change. And we don't have to accept those changes. We can go through them one by one and vote them out, mm -hmm. but it will be separate and it will be a, a separate independent body. Mm. Uh, so you set this thing up. We'll call it the Legislative Scrutiny Committee. Mm. Um, and let's say it had 200 members, because there's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, how would you, you wouldn't elect those people. This is a legislative scrutiny committee. Mm. You wouldn't elect them. How would you, you well, you'd appoint them. Appoint them, yeah. Uh, and, and you'd probably appoint them by getting the party leaders together and agreeing, you know, mm -hmm. supporting them. nominations. And then somebody would say, yeah, but we need some outside expertise in this, don't we? It can't all just be party nominees. So, how about we had the president of the Royal College of Nurses, the one who's just resigned, not the sitting one, because mm -hmm. she's busy, but, you know, the president of the Royal College of Physicians, ex-president of this, the president of the uh, whatever. And we need a few people with defence experience. Mm -hmm. And obviously it'd be hugely helpful if we had some senior, ex-senior judges, like Supreme Court judges and mm -hmm. Lord Justices and people like that, um, and, and we could appoint them as well. And so we'll make it up, and you end up with something that looks like the House of Lords. Yeah, so it's 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 logical. You you yeah. you'd end up with the House of Lords, wouldn't you? Certainly. So, uh, do you think that the position then of the hereditary peerage being uh, a, a defensible position? Do you think that the the hereditary peers are are I suppose legitimate in the House of Lords? Yeah, well, I think they defend themselves on... They wouldn't defend themselves. They'd be very apologetic about themselves because they're very nice and modest people. But the, the defence is, first of all, they're there they're there by ancient tradition. 
Mm. And there should be more of them. Uh, mm -hmm. The second thing is, precisely because they're elected amongst mm. themselves, uh, they actually tend to do the job full-time and work at it. Mm. Uh, you could say they're the most democratic. Because they're, they're taking somebody else's place, so to speak. Mm. You know, because there'll be a contest and they're saying, vote for me. Um, and that means don't vote for Smith. Don't vote for whatever. Yeah. Um, and they tend to do a lot of the work in the House of Lords is done by the hereditary peers. Mm. You could say uh, that they, they are tend to be very, um, very active. Sorry, I said you could you could say that they're the more democratically elected peers in the House of Lords. Then could you because they're all elected by the other hereditaries? Well, they're they're also a little bit more diverse in some sense. But less diverse, the system of male primogeniture means that there are very, very few uh, women holding hereditary peerages. Mm. Um, and uh, there are now no female hereditary peers in the House of Lords. There was one, but mm. there are none now. Um, and uh, the second, uh, but the, on the other hand, uh, they very often tend to be younger. Because mm. it used to be the case, when you had a fully hereditary House of Lords, that you would get people coming into the House of Lords aged 21. Yes. Wow. I mean, there's a particular hereditary peer at the moment who's been in the House of Lords, who was re-elected in 1999, was elected in 1999, mm. who's my age. And I remember being at his maiden speech when he was 21. Because his father had died when he was younger, when he was a teenager. Yeah. So he inherited the title. He wasn't allowed to take his seat till he was 21. Mm. Um, and, and he came in and he made his speech. And 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 has been actively involved the whole of his life. Uh, one of the hereditary peers we've got at the moment was elected when he was thirty-five. Mm. To, uh, that is a, a year or so. He's thirty-six now, I think. Um, um, and so on. So he used to have a much younger house. It's a bit of an old people's home in some ways. At the <laughs> Whereas um, it used to be a much younger house, but mm. definitely a very male house. Um, and, it, and the hereditary peers are not, on the whole, females. Mm. And, okay. of course, they're not ethnically diverse because they've yeah. had the peerage in the family for one or two generations, in some case for yeah. some, a small number of cases, for 24 or 25 generations. Gosh. Oh, wow. Okay, so bringing the uh, podcast to a close now, are there any final remarks that you'd like to make in order to you know, inspire a bit more curiosity in people's thinking about the House of Lords and, and why maybe well, the House of Lords as, as it is should stay. As far as the... I'm not, I'm not here to defend the House. I didn't come on specifically to defend the House of Lords because I do mm. recognise that there is a, a democratic case to make for a different system. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I, what I do want to say is that, um, as in all things that do a job, um, you you need to start by asking, what does it do? Do we need someone to do that? Is that a good thing to do? Mm. And what would what is what is a better way of doing it, rather than start with a blank sheet of paper and say that everything needs to conform to certain principles? Yes, I think a more sort of Aristotelian or Oakeshottian mm. view that it's not really about 
it doesn't have to be about principles, although democracy is a very, very important principle. Mm. I agree with um, and very hard to argue again, and I'm not arguing against it. But it is also a question of how does it work? What does it do? What's it for? And and is there a better way of doing it? And I'm sure there are better ways of doing what Lords does. But simply mm-hmm. making it an elected chamber isn't going isn't going to make it a better better at its job, mm-hmm. unless you're very very careful about attention to detail. I think there are lots of other constitutional changes that have happened in the last. 20 or 25 years, especially since 1997, which are very much more worrying and troublesome than having to think about the composition of the House of Lords. Mm. Um, And that's where I put my focus, if I was interested in constitutional change, on things like the collapse of cabinet government. Mm. Uh, You know, we no longer have cabinet government as we did even in the late 20th century. Everything Mm. is run by number 10. The dysfunctionality of 10 Downing Street, Mm. which is a, and I don't mean that as relating to one prime minister as opposed to another, it it is institutionally dysfunctional now Mm. uh, and is um, uh, taking on work and running the whole country and the whole government uh, in a way that was never intended, largely with people who are half out of university and don't even, you know, any comparison between 10 Downing Street and the Elysee Palace, I'm talking mm. about another, the people who work there, the people running policy, makes us look like a bunch of hopeless and incompetent amateurs, which is, of course, the impression that you get whenever you deal with <laughs> Downing Street. <Yeah. laughs> whenever you read the news. <laughs> now, now, it's trying, and now it's not just a prime minister's department. It's trying to run the whole government. And mm. ministers have ceased to have any real function. So we'll move to a much more presidential system with none of the um, none of the apparatus um, mm. required to do it effectively, and nobody wants to talk about it. Mm. I think it's just much more important than worrying about the composition of the House of Lords. Mm. I think just just the last thing from me. Um, um, you talked about how um, you kind of like started off in financial services, and like no, much, yeah, I'm I'm interested in financial services, and I'm also equally interested. In, like, in the political field. I was yeah. wondering whether you like, have any advice for like either me or any of our listeners of like, how can you juggle um, like your career in say like financial services and politics? Like, how did that work for you? Or is that- like, yeah, well, It worked for me can... because after a period, I took myself out of working for a bank and started okay. my consultancy business so could I, I could juggle my time. But it meant I was- I've ended up a lot less rich than I would have done if maybe if I'd stayed in <laughs> banks stayed in never for, um, for a longer period. So um, my um, I think it's fairly clear that you, as a young person, you probably can't do both um, because although there are lots of political activities you can get plugged into in your spare time. Lots of clubs and societies you can join, meetings that they organise, often at the Palace of Westminster, or getting involved in your local, the local branch of your political party. All of those things are compatible with full-time work. But actually, even that's difficult if you don't have any spare time. Mm-hmm. My, my, niece, my niece has just completed her... Um, time after university training as a chartered accountant 
with one of the big four firms. Mm. And um, um, during all of that training, the two or three years, couple of years, whatever she was doing it, I mean, she never left work before 8.30 in the evening. Wow. Yeah. You know, so you, you really, you're, you're, you're heading off into a potentially high-powered and well-paid career, and a, a degree of commitment is expected and a degree of focus, understandably, mm. which makes it difficult to um, take on extracurricular activities. So mm. the, the other way of looking at it is to say, well, I'll do it sequentially. I'll go and work in financial services. I'll make you know, a huge and fortune. Then, I don't know what good luck. Um, and then I will, I'll keep my a very loose contact with political friends and then I'll go into politics later. That's another way of looking at it. Mm. Mm. But it is that, difficult. That a lot, yeah. You know, high-powered, well-paid um, traineeships for jobs or traineeships and so on for high-powered jobs that tend to be higher-powered and well-paid. They do expect that degree of focus. Mm. Mm. Well, hard work. Thank you very much, Lord Milam. Thank you for thank you for joining no, us. Thank you, Bellamy. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. And very flattered to be asked. Thank you very much. Indeed. Say goodbye. Thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>